This morning we continue our look at the Gospel of Luke here on Sunday morning. We've made our way as far as chapter 10. We'll now pick it up in verse 1. And let's begin by reading it together. After these things, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag or knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter first, say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will not return it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for laborers deserve his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick and say to them that the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, Go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we shall wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day for Sodom uh, than for this town. And woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, then they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects uh, you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. 
For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. As we are making our way through the Gospel of Luke, we now come to that point in chapter 10 where Jesus is about to enter the city of Jerusalem as he has been making his way from the northern area of the region of Galilee, making his way towards Jerusalem to arrive there for the hour of his determination. Throughout the Gospels, the Bible said that Jesus continuously looked and pointed to an hour in time that he had been sent to fulfill. That hour is undoubtedly the hour that he was uh, therefore crucified there in Jerusalem and then of course on the third day rose again. As Jesus is now making his way and arriving even closer to the city of Jerusalem, he is sending out before him a group of heralds and a group of individuals that would prepare the way for him and announce his coming and his arrival. We find in the New Testament that this concept of the herald has been furthered as Paul said that you and I have are now ambassadors for Jesus Christ in this world. The herald was an important uh, messenger on behalf of a king. He would literally precede the king into every region in which that king would enter preparing for his arrival to that particular location. And as the herald would enter into a city, he would often be uh, carrying some type of gift for the leadership of the city on behalf of the king that was about to arrive. And he also would be uh, carrying some kind of authorization something that demonstrated that he truly was a herald of the king that was about to follow and enter into the city that is now anticipating his arrival. Jesus here brings forward that he has now sent 70 or 72, depending on what English version of the Bible you, re- you have. There is great debate over a little a uh, word in the Greek that is uh, spelled D-Y-O, which is the word two in Greek. Uh, and the manuscript evidence can go either way if it was 72 or 70. Many fall on the side of 72, others fall on the side of 70. That being said, he sends these individuals into these regions for the purpose of announcing his arrival. As he states very clearly, go into these areas and let them know and also prepare them for my coming. And as we begin here in verse 1, we discover that these heralds being sent out were first and foremost sent out with number one, a message, number two, with power, and number three, they were sent out with purpose. They were to anticipate some receiving them and heeding the message in which they proclaimed. Others would reject the message that they stated. And as a result, Jesus therefore gives them the understanding or the perspective that they need to have as they enter into these various regions 
And he prepares them after calling them in verse 1. And after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And here's how he prepared them, beginning in verse 2. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, and go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of the wolves." Jesus knew that there were those who were ready to acknowledge the fact that he was Messiah and the kingdom of God was here at hand. He also knew that there would be those who would reject him. And he therefore articulates what would be the consequence of that rejection. He is making it very clear to those who are going out in his name what they can anticipate and what they can expect. Number one, he wants them to have the same vision that he does and see that the people are ready to hear what they have to say. But not all will respond positively. He says and describes for his um, ambassadors that they are like laborers, farmers, going out into the harvest and being ready to gather what what the crop has to offer, the fruit from it. He uses similar language in John chapter 4, which I think many are also very aware of. When he is there in Samaria, and the woman he meets by the well then returns to the region of Samaria after talking with Jesus, and as the disciples returned, as she then went into the city, he said to them, now look, the fields are white unto harvest. The time is right. People are ready to listen to what you have to say. But he also mentioned that the laborers are few, that the job is immense, and that further laborers would be gathered in the wake of their efforts, meaning that they themselves would be raising up laborers for the purpose of carrying on the message of Jesus Christ. But he also told them, now I want you to also understand, though, that I'm sending you out as lambs amongst the wolves. Or, if I could put it this way, you standing in the middle of the lion cage at Brookfield Zoo. You're going to be in a vulnerable position. There will be those who hate you and those who persecute you and those who will see you destroyed before heeding the message in which you have to bring to them. It's going to be dangerous. It is going to require great commitment to go out on my behalf and to proclaim what I am asking you to proclaim. But as I send you out as lambs in the midst of the wolves, I want you to make sure that you carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, that would be an extra pair of sandals, and greet no one on the road. It is a term there in the Greek that uh, means as they are um, making their way on the road, they do not get distracted by those things that may distract them as they are traveling from one city to another. And whatever house you enter into, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Verse 6 is difficult to understand, and so you put it in the context of the history in which it was written. 
If one welcomes you warmly into their home, which in that culture, which was actually considered uh, the Oriental culture, believe it or not, in this culture, hospitality was a great virtue. And if someone came to your home in need, it would be um, uh, proper to expect them to help you because they felt that was their obligation and responsibility, that if someone came to them in need, that they would warmly welcome them into their house. And Jesus says, if that person is a son of peace, meaning that as you reside in their house and they see the mission in which you are on, and therefore they see that some are receiving and some are rejecting you, if they continue that warm hospitality and they continue to bear with you in peace and love, then let the peace remain that you bring to that home upon them. But if they become frustrated with you, if they ask you to leave because they no longer want the problems that you appear to be bringing to their home and they want you to move on from where you are at, then don't feel obligated to stay, he says. Let your peace remain with you and move on. That's what he is saying there. He was putting them in a position of dependence upon him. He didn't want a money bag in which they could accumulate money or be looked at as one who simply is coming into the village looking to raise funds for the king that is about to precede them, which some heralds did. So no money, no knapsack, no extra pair of sandals. He's asking them to go by faith, to carry this message that the kingdom of God is near, and to do so by faith as they watch the Lord meet them where they are. Now, exactly, this is exactly what I meant when I initially said that when a herald is sent out by a king, he's usually given gifts by that king to present to the leaders of those various areas or uh, some type of authentic, or, uh, authorization stating that he is actually there about the king's business. And it is interesting because as we read through the list, it would appear that neither one of those have been given to them by Jesus, but we would be mistaken. Because we are looking for material things, right? A material gift or a material um, object that would indicate their authorization to proceed in that king's name. But notice what Jesus does that separated him from every other king that ever came into that region. Notice the gift in which he sends before them. In verse 7, he says, And remain in the same house, eating and drinking, whatever they provide, for labor deserves his wages. Meaning, don't be picky about it. Don't say, well, really? French fries? Really? Again? Pancakes? We had that yesterday. Oatmeal? Are you kidding? Don't you really care about us? Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat whatever they set before you. And here's the gift. Heal the sick and say to them that the kingdom of God has come to you near to you. The gift that they had to offer was the restoration, the healing of individuals. To demonstrate, of course, the authority in which they are coming in. The authority that Jesus Christ has given them. In one simple act, not only is a gift given in the healing of those who are sick, making, making them whole, 
restoring them to a healthy uh, status, but also demonstrating that the power that Jesus Christ had demonstrated in and through his life, they were now capable of demonstrating in and through their life. It is interesting to me that we as Christians don't fully understand that salvation in Jesus Christ is not only the removal of the uh, umbrella of death and the wrath of God that we live under as those who are apart from Christ do, but in the process of salvation, and what do I mean by that? In the process of, sal- of salvation that is uh, indicated in the work of sanctification, God is restoring us to who He originally desired us to be. I don't know how many look at Christianity any longer as a faith that restores the individuals back to a healthy state before God. Allowing us to once again be whole as He has created us and as the fall of man had taken from us. The fall of man took away our wholeness before God and brought about sin which brought about death. And in the wake of that death, we have decay, we have sicknesses, we have sorrows and sufferings, etc. Dealing with the things we do due to the fact that the fallen world around us uh, has been submerged into the effects of sin and death. Christianity is such an incredible, incredible salvation that it's salvation along with sanctification. Because God loves you too much to leave you the way He found you. And God works in your life day by day. Paul knew that. Peter knew that. John knew that. And they saw themselves, meaning that whatever condition I am in today, that's not the condition that I will remain in for all eternity. Paul wrote extensively in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that there's a new heavenly body waiting for us not made with hands, that will allow us to enjoy heaven to its fullest. To allow us to enjoy the new heaven and the new earth that will be given unto us at the end of all things. Where everything once again is back to the original state in which God created all things that He indicated was good after each aspect of the creation process. He now says that the restoration that Jesus Christ is bringing is a restoration completely and fully. Now, does that mean it's all going to happen in our lifetime? No. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's all going to happen in our lifetime. And where God doesn't bring about complete healing in our lifetime he gives us something to overcome the limitations that that um, uh, that aspect of our life brings upon us and that is his grace for paul the apostle prayed to the lord over and over and over again that this uh, thorn in his flesh would be removed and god says my grace is sufficient for you this thorn in his flesh, which I personally believe was an eye condition that he had, that he indicates in Galatians also, and elsewhere throughout the New Testament, this eye condition greatly limited his ability to write by his own hand. 
In fact, in one description, it says that even though he appeared physically disgusting to the people around him, and we don't know if that meant that the condition of his eyes were something that was very difficult to look upon. Were they oozing, you know, and were they difficult to look at, you know, where, you know, you'd be sure that your kids would point it out right away. Mom, Dad, what's wrong with his eyes? You know, they're always so subtle in what they do. But Paul says, you know, you could have received me that way, but you received me as an angel of God. You look past that. Paul says, I prayed, I prayed. And then the Lord says, I've given you my grace, Paul. It appears that God used that physical limitation in Paul's life to keep him humble and dependent upon God. And that grace was sufficient, as Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, he said to Paul, sufficiency in it. And then Paul, later on then writes, he says, you know what though, though in my weakness I've discovered it's in that place that the strength of God can be so amply demonstrated before the whole world. And and when I'm weak, he is strong. And if I can glorify God or allow himself through my weakness, then so be it. That's what he said. But God is in the restoration business. And this was the gift and the authorization the indication of their authority to precede the king in his arrival. Verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, well, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. What a warning. A day of judgment is approaching. It is not a popular subject. In fact, I did a Google search this week to discover how many churches in our area are discussing this weekend the judgment of God. Do you know how many I found? Zero. So let's talk about the judgment of God simply so we can be different. (laughs) But it is a reality that the Bible talks about consistently. From Genesis to the book of Revelation, there is a day that God will hold all the world accountable for the sins that they have committed against Him. You and I who are in Jesus Christ... Jesus Christ has dealt with our sin before God the Father. And therefore, we don't have to fear that day as others should fear that day or be concerned about that day. The writers of the New Testament were not uh, politically correct and unwilling to talk about the judgment of God, thinking that it would create fear. Often when I talk to people... People will ask me, does hell actually exist? And I will say, yes, hell actually exists. Do you believe in a judgment day that God will hold people accountable? Yes, I believe in a judgment day that God will hold people accountable. Do you believe that that uh, judgment will result in their eternal placement in hell for all eternity? Yes, I do, because Jesus told me that it was a reality to be aware of. And then they'll look at me 
and say, well, that's just manipulating people by fear. Well, Paul said, if that's what it takes, so be it. If that helps them become aware of their dire situation before God, that that fear creates in them an understanding that they are desperately in need of a Savior, so be it. The only reason I say that to someone, number one, they ask, and number two, it is a reality of the Scripture. And if I were to say no, then I would be denying the Scriptures and I would be denying Christ. Because Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else in the New Testament. But Jesus said to those cities who had this opportunity, those people who had this opportunity, the kingdom of God as near to them as I am to you, their fate at the day of judgment will be immense. And as a result, even a city like Sodom and Gomorrah will benefit better than they will in that day of judgment. God holds us accountable to what we know to be true. And he states this in clarity in verse 13, if you'll read on with me. He says, woe to you, woe to you. Notice that twice. And the word woe is not an individual sitting on top of a horse pulling the reins back. That's how we often see it. The word actually means horror to you, horror to you. And it is derived and, and it, is, it is found throughout the Old Testament, especially there in Isaiah, talking about the impending judgment coming about uh, upon you, upon Chorazin, upon Bethsaida, two cities that apparently have rejected the message in which the heralds brought. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth, and ashes. Tyre and Sidon are two cities that are mentioned in the Old Testament explicitly in Jeremiah and Isaiah. I should say especially, excuse me. They were cities that turned against Israel and therefore God judged them for them turning upon the nation of Israel. The Jewish people looked at those two cities as illustrations of what would happen to anyone who came against them without, you know, of course, God's permission. This was a great bit of confusion to those in that culture at that time because they didn't understand why Rome was having the success over them as the Greeks did who oppressed them before Rome. And so this was kind of a sticking point for them. They couldn't understand that it was their disobedience that God is trying to bring to their attention and also setting the context for the arrival of the Messiah. But these two towns were illustrations. Don't mess with us because you remember what happened to Tyre and Sidon. But Jesus now says, no, woe to you. Because if Sidon and Tyre, uh, Tyre would have had the works that were done in your presence, done in their presence, they would have repented before me. And you should have repented, but you did not. You chose not to repent. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven, meaning you think you can do it on your own, 
Really, you shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, that is the herald, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him, that is God the Father, who sent me. It is impossible to get to heaven apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And as a result, many have wanted to diminish the person of Jesus Christ and reduce him to a simple teacher, prophet, priest, etc. If you talk to your Islamic friends, you will find that that's what they have done. They have reduced Jesus to a mere prophet. But as Christians, let us be clear that we hold to the truth that the Bible declares that Jesus was not only 100% man, but he was 100% God also. He wasn't simply God in man's flesh. He had both attributes combined together. It is called technically the hyperstatic union of Christ. I'll throw that out for you. If you haven't had your coffee yet this morning, you might have to go back and revisit that one. But we believe that Jesus Christ was unlike any other. The book of Hebrews clearly tells us that he was greater than prophets, greater than angels, greater than any priest that ever lived on this earth because of who he was. When we talk about Jesus, let us understand that there are many Jesuses in our world today. Mormons have a different understanding of Jesus than we do. Jehovah's Witnesses have different understandings of Jesus than we do. There are some denominations that believe saints and the mother of Jesus can also serve as co-redeemers to the people of God. But yet Jesus says, I am the only way to God. Because he was the only one who was perfect, who could die in the position of a sacrifice, a lamb unto this world, one who could pay for the totality of the sins of this world in all that he did and said here on this earth. And then allow God the Father to confirm that to your heart by the resurrection on the third day. By his resurrection on the third day, God the Father was basically saying this, Everything that Jesus said in his 33 years on this earth is true. He's exactly who he says he was and is today. And he is truly my son. We are living in a time now where the evangelical church is under great scrutiny. We are evangelical Christians. And many of the fundamental doctrines, foundational doctrines that we hold to are being scrutinized once again, including the Trinity. The understanding that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three in one. And if you ask me to explain the Trinity to you, I would have great difficulty trying to articulate to you in my finite limits uh, an infinite truth. But that's what the Bible teaches, and by faith we accept it. But Jesus is saying here very clearly that if they reject you, if they hear you, they hear me. If they reject you, they reject me. And they also reject the one who sent me. 
And as the 72 returned in verse 17, notice with me, and the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, For I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Many today want to believe in in the Christian church that Satan isn't a real individual or entity, but he is just simply a metaphorical uh, personification of evil. That it doesn't really exist. But we just kind of need to create this uh, caricature for people to understand evil, and so therefore we've made the devil. And many today will say that the devil has horns and is red and carries a pitchfork uh, around with him. But the Bible clearly teaches that Satan originally was an angel in the heavenly hosts of God, and that he fell due to the fact that he rose up before God and desired to be worshipped and acknowledged as God was worshipped and acknowledged. The, The doctrine of Satan is found in the Old and New Testament alike. In fact, in the New Testament alone, there are 35 different references to Satan and characterized by different names. Tempter. Uh, ruler of this world, Lord of this world, God of this world, etc. There are many different ruler of demons, evil ones, father of lies, a murderer, etc. The doctrine of Satan is a reality. There is an individual who was created by God initially as an angel who fell from his place of prominence in heaven and God cast him down due to the pride that arose within his heart before God. Now, there are two passages in the Old Testament, one found in Isaiah 14 and the other found in Ezekiel chapter 28. And I'd like you to look at these with me. In both of these passages, it is speaking initially the one in Isaiah of the king of Babylon and the one in Ezekiel of the king of Tyre, which is the city we just spoke about earlier in our discussion. And as they describe these kings, there are many Christians who hold to the fact that in these descriptions of the lives of these kings, that in their lives they reflected and therefore give us insight to the manner in which Satan fell from heaven. And it's fact from these two passages that we derive the fact that he fell due to pride before God. Now the one in Isaiah is more greatly debated than the one in Ezekiel 28. There are some who hold that the passage in Isaiah is simply speaking of the uh, king of Babylon and is not referring to Satan at all. But let us look at the language that is used there because it isn't uncommon for prophetic and uh, spiritual illustrations to be interwoven with um, realities, physical realities on our side. Let me explain. In Daniel chapter 10, it is clearly told to us that there are spiritual entities behind the rulers that rule upon this earth. 
In fact, as Daniel prayed, his prayers were hindered by a demonic force that required an angel to come and to see the answer to that prayer resolved in the heart and in the mind of Daniel. That there's a spiritual element behind the physical element, which many believe are explained for us here in these passages. The one in Ezekiel is harder to deny because of the fact that verse 13 states that you were in Eden, that is the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God, which would have been an impossibility for the king of Tyre because he lived a thousand years after that fact. So if we made your way to Isaiah 14, starting in verse 12, it begins with how you are fallen from heaven O morning star or day star, son of the dawn. In the King James, New King James, when they translated that version in 1611, they drew from the Latin Vulgate the word Lucifer, which in actuality is not a proper uh, noun, meaning a name, but in Latin, Lucifer simply means light bearer or could be translated day star or morning star. You have the true morning star, you have the false morning star. But the King James translators brought that word over not from the Hebrew text, but from the Latin text into your versions. And this is how we get the name Lucifer for the devil, which in fact, initially it never was until it was put into this context. And then he goes on to write, How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the of the pit. Now this very well may have described the heart of the king of Babylon, but woven in it could certainly be the events taken place that is mirrored in the life of the king of Babylon because as one who is not governed by God, he lies under the sway of the wicked one, reflecting the characters of the wicked one rather than the characters of God. I'll throw that out for your consideration. Ezekiel 28, if you look there with me, verses 11 through 17. This one is interesting. Ezekiel 28, 11 through 17, if I may begin in verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, that is Ezekiel, the son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, describing this individual. Verse 13, you were in Eden, that is the Garden of Eden. Why do we know that? Notice what it says next, the Garden of God. Every precious stone was your, was, uh, your covering, sardis and topaz, diamond and braille, onyx and jasper and s- sapphire and emerald, Donner and Blitzen and Comet and Cupid. No, and, uh, the carbide, the, the crafted in gold were your setting and your engravings. And on the day that you were created, they were prepared. Verse 14 makes it very difficult not to associate this with Satan also when it says, you were an anointed guardian cherubim, which is angel. 
It is one of the highest levels of angels in the Old Testament. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. No man has ever been born blameless before God, have they? No. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your mists, and you sinned, and I cast you as, profane, as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherubim, from the mists of the stones of the fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. Satan is a reality. The Bible teaches that he was an angel created by God that sinned against God and was cast down for doing so. The book of Revelation says that one-third of the angels were taken with him. These are now demons that the Bible speaks of clearly. And so you may ask yourself at this point, saying, do you believe in all of that? I say to you, I have to believe all of that. Because my Lord and Savior said that He saw when Satan was cast down and fell like lightning from heaven. Satan was a reality. Satan is a reality today. Jesus told us that He has come to steal, kill, and destroy And that Jesus has come to uh, destroy the works of the devil. That the devil comes as a roaring lion seeking in whom he may destroy. But our Savior Jesus Christ has defeated him. And did so in that moment in the wilderness when he was tempted three times. Unlike Adam who succumbed to that temptation and sinned before God, Jesus Christ was perfect before God and had not sinned at all in the wake of the temptation that Satan brought forward, defeating him at that moment and then sealing his fate at the cross. But nothing scared Satan more undoubtedly than that third day when Jesus rose again. That would have been something to see, wouldn't it? Talk about that moment, you know. Satan thinks he has won and defeated the Savior, and the Savior is in a moment of vulnerability as he's hanging there on the cross, bleeding and suffering in the manner in which he was. Satan laughing, undoubtedly, I've won, I've won, I've won. Oh, yeah. He didn't say that when the tomb was rolled open. And he certainly doesn't say that in the book of Revelation when Jesus Christ returns with the white horse. He's coming back again. But he goes on to his disciples and says in verse 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. These were words that were used in that culture to describe evil in that culture. Uh, And of course, serpents going back to the form of Satan in the garden and scorpions. Well, I'm not sure what the poor scorpions did against God, but God didn't seem to care for him. And over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you at that moment. It's momentary and it's temporal in the Greek. Nevertheless, he says, do not rejoice in this, 
that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that in that your names are written in heaven. It is incredible to me the victory and the identity that we have in Jesus Christ, that we as Christians sometimes don't understand and walk within. I am nobody personally before Satan or any other angel of God. But Jesus said something very interesting, that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And so it's not me. It's not me who commands Satan. Uh, It's not me who uh, puts him in place. It's God through me. I believe Satan is real. I believe that he can oppress a Christian, not possess, because again, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. But he can sure make it difficult on us at times. But let us understand that I once had a picture in my office that was Satan sitting on a curb with his head in his hands like this. And he says, those darn Christians blame me for everything. You know, we like to blame Satan for every one of our failures and faults, but let us understand that we are fallen creatures before a holy God. And that Satan has created a world system to do what? To draw us in the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. To draw us away from what God would have for us and try to draw us into the mire of this corrupt and fallen world. That's what Satan would do for us. We must be responsible for our own actions before God. But let us understand that just as they had power then, we have power today because the Spirit of God resides in us. And there's no more effective manner to exercise that power than, the, than prayer. You want to get serious about warfare, you get serious about prayer. And tell me if that doesn't change your life. Let us roll this up now in verse 21. And in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, the nobles and the intellectuals, and have revealed them to little children, meaning in people who will just simply believe because God said, this is who he is. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The kingdom of God, it wasn't going to be furthered on the, on, on the intellectualism of man or on the wisdom of man or on the wealth of man. It was going to be carried in earthen vessels of no value whatsoever, making the message in which they carry extremely valuable. And all things have been handed over to me by my Father, he says. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And then running to the, uh, turning to the disciples, excuse me, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it. And hear what you hear and did not hear it. I see Jesus looking back and he's looking at the disciples in front of him and he's saying, Oh, understand the privilege in which you, are, are, you have at this moment. 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and Noah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all would have given everything for this moment to see the Messiah before them. They prophesied knowing that he was coming soon and yet waited in their moments of their lives and yet did not see him. But you've seen him. You know him. And he has revealed God the Father to us. As the disciples kept asking, Oh Lord, oh Lord, show us the Father. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's our God. Knowing Jesus is knowing God. And remember what I said last time together. Our relationship with God isn't simply uh, meant to simply know about God. Our relationship with God is to know God. He is a living entity. We remember Jesus Christ is still not on the cross. He is risen again. He is live and a living and wants to interact with you. I mean, I love it when people say, when we talk to God, it's prayer, but when God talks to us, it's schizophrenia. Really? This is why I value my time each and every day in the Word of God. Praying beforehand and praying afterwards that the Spirit of God would allow this to become alive in my life. Because we are seeing what they saw. We are hearing what they heard. And even though he is not physically here with us, you and I know that as part of the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, we are meant to be his hands and feet to one another, encouraging one another, loving one another, uh, interacting with one another for the purpose of strengthening one another as iron sharpens iron. And God did not set out to advance his kingdom through individuals of intellectual means. Does that mean that anyone who's intellectual can't be saved? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. That's not the manner in which he chose to advance his kingdom. It wasn't through the wise and the wealthy. It was through individuals like you and I. Not that we are simple in the state of stupidity. I'm not saying that. But we are willing like a child to believe that what God says is true and to apply it by faith in our life. I would like to close with this if I may. If you'd like to read along, I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 through 31. This is Paul writing, who is one of the great intellects of the New Testament. And yet his conclusion concerning his own personal intellectualism was this. And it's encouraging to me. In verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who would believe. Jews demanded a sign and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greek, Christ the power of God 
and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God stronger than men. For consider your callings, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the, what is the foolish thing in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the, uh, and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, you who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that it is written let the one who boasts boast in the lord what an incredibly encouraging verse when i originally read this verse 33 years ago i therefore concluded this that anything that god called me to do he would equip me to do for his kingdom that it wasn't my strengths my weaknesses it wasn't a personal aptitude that I carried within me that would further the purposes of God. It was God's strength through me that mattered. What encouragement is it? You know, many people hand out cards and they always, you know, PhD or MD, PhD or PhD, you know, MD, uh, CPA, um, you know, and so forth. Many letters you know, my card says, Eric, Pastor Eric Benz, foolish thing of the world. Those are the letters that carry after my name. And hopefully, in all that God does, he gets all the glory for it. Paul saw himself that way, too. You and I have to realize that we continue on what these disciples did. Those 70 or 72 that went out into the world, we now go out into the world. And let us understand that today the fields are white. And nothing demonstrated that more to me than this heritage vest just a couple weeks ago. People are willing to listen. They have good, earnest, sincere questions about God and about the state of our world and so forth. And they have that. And they just want someone that they can approach and ask a simple question of. And yet we made ourselves available and they continued to come one right after another. I don't know if anyone rejected the idea of us praying for them in hopes that we could show them that God is bigger than they are. But the fields are white today. And you and I, just like them, have a message that the gospel of Jesus Christ not only saves but restores people to the image that God originally created them. And though we may not see ourselves as heralds, let us truly see ourselves as ambassadors. As Paul stated, I am now an ambassador for Christ, reconciling the fallen world back to Him. And thirdly, let us understand this in closing. Some will receive and some will reject what you said. It's not our job to save them. That's God's job. We should just allow ourselves to be willing vessels to be used for the purposes of God wherever we may find ourselves.